Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. Well, I'm going to tell you something you already know. It may not be a happy fact. I hope it's not a happy fact. But the tenure of every pastor in every church all through time is limited. Every pastor's tenure at a church comes to an end, whether that's because God has called them from one place to another, or they retire, or he takes them home to be with him. At some point, everybody's ministry comes to an end, and there's always the question of what happens Next, And this has been a question that has been going on throughout church history, and one we're going to see addressed here in our passage today. I think the fact that a pastor's tenure is limited because they don't stay there forever, there's always a point in which they will exit for one reason or another. I think it is important that we understand that the pastor is not the central or foundational person or element of the church and its ministry in the world. We see, we've seen over and over again Paul going from one place to another to another, and yet those churches he left have not, been, have not fallen apart in his absence because the church does not belong to Paul. The church does not exist on account of Paul. The church exists on account of Christ, the head of the church, and the mission that he has for the church. But I think that it's important for us to remember this limited time frame that a pastor is with a particular church because I think that too often we put too much emphasis on the ministry of a pastor, and I think that's true of all churches, or many churches at least, uh, and I'm going to give you some examples in just a few moments. We've seen Paul traveling from place to place throughout his ministry, and we've taken note of both those who the Lord has raised up to continue the work after he was gone as well as the work of the everyday Christ followers to continue and persist in the work that Paul himself had done and had trained them to be able to do, whether he was with them or not. And we get a glimpse of Paul's concern about churches, even in his day, that put too much emphasis behind the role of a Christian leader instead of the role of Christ in leading his church and our joint responsibility in the ministry and the mission that God has called us to. We see this in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Right in the very first chapter, he's addressing division in this church that he himself planted only five years earlier. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one could say that you were baptized in my name. 
Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, but the cross, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul here in this particular passage is addressing uh, a church in the city of Corinth, and Corinth was known for people following behind particular teachers of various schools of philosophy and other forms of, of teaching. Uh, and so it's common, perhaps in this particular culture, for people to say, I follow that person or I follow that person. But how terrible it is that that cultural attribute has found its way into the church and is now dividing the church because they have put too much stake in their various leaders. The church is not supposed to be this way. Paul says this, we're to follow Christ. And yes, God uses human leaders to point to him. God uses human leaders as a part of the body of Christ, but certainly not the most important part, but a part like all the others with its respective function as assigned by the Lord. And when Christians place their leaders on a pedestal or ascribe too much responsibility for the church's mission and calling and ministry among these are themselves to their leaders. They allow division between themselves on account of leaders. The church struggles and the church ultimately fails or fails to live up to what God has called it to. We have numerous modern examples of this, of churches that struggled, became unstable or folded even after a pastor left demonstrating that the pastor was too much the central figure of the church and its ministry and its mission. We have examples of people who left churches because their favorite pastor left, as if the rest of the church family didn't matter, as if the ministry and mission didn't matter. And I pray when the day comes for me to move on to my next ministry assignment or retire or the Lord calls me home, um, that our church family will dig in together to continue to grow the ministry and the mission that God has called us to here at Belglade Alliance Church. In the passage we're going to study today and next week, we get to see Paul's final words to the elders of a church in Ephesus. This is a church that Paul has visited on numerous occasions. It's a church that Paul had started from a small group of women by the river outside of town to become a thriving church. And in his most recent stint there, he's been there for three years, ministering to them, proclaiming the gospel to Jews and to Gentiles, training up leaders, discipling the church, preaching the word. And now he's about to tell them that he will never return. This is the last time he's going to see them and he's, in, he's, he's, been, he's trying to bring to the fore in the, in the elders' minds those things that his ministry has stood for and the responsibilities they carry as he goes. And so if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 13. I believe that Paul's words are not only relevant for the Ephesian elders and for the Christians living in Ephesus, but also for all churches, even us here today. Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 13. And this is what it says. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. 
The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. And so here's what we have going on here. Paul is on his way back to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit has made it very clear that this is the next step in his ministry, is he must return back to Jerusalem at this time. But he has loved and cared for the people in Ephesus and other regions of this area of Asia. And he knew if he traveled through there, he would never get to Jerusalem especially in time for the the time that God is calling him to be there. And so he contracted a merchant ship, a merchant ship that carries passengers, that carries cargo. And so we see it moving along the coast to various different ports. And Paul is meeting up with his companions on the ship at a particular port. And here's what we see happening uh, in the verses that we've just read. And at one particular port, They have a multi-day layover. My family and I just went on a cruise. I wish we had multi-day layovers because you got like five hours to see everything you want to see, and that's all you get to see. Paul had multi-day layover, but he didn't go sightseeing at this particular port. He didn't book a shore excursion. What did Paul do? He sent word to the elders at the church of Ephesus where he just spent three years and said, please come meet me in this city. I have final remarks to make to you in preparation for this next phase of your church's ministry. And so they met him out there, and we continue our reading in verse 17. Here's what it says. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. I'm going to take some time and dig in here. There's a lot that can be unpacked from our passage passage that we've just read here. But there's three things I want to highlight in particular uh, that Paul is doing in these verses that we've just read. Let me list them for you first and then we'll break them down. The first is this. He summarizes the emphases of his ministry in Ephesus. He summarizes the emphasis of his ministry as he was taking time in Ephesus over the last several years. And we'll see why this is important. Second, he demonstrates the outlook that Christians are called to have as they serve the Lord Jesus in this world. 
And third, he urges them to remain in the truth which he has faithfully trained them in throughout his entirety of his ministry there. So let's take a look at these three things a little closer. The first, he summarizes the emphases of his ministry in Ephesus. We see this in verses 20 and 21. He says, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And so this is the first aspect or element of, his, of his, one of his emphases of the ministry that he had in Ephesus. And here's what we see, that Paul proclaims the gospel everywhere he goes and to everyone he could get an audience with. He proclaims it to the Jews in the synagogues. In Ephesus, there was no synagogue, but he went to where the Jews gathered and he proclaimed the gospel to them there. He goes to the public spheres in the city to reach out to as many Gentiles as would hear him, and he proclaims the gospel everywhere to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. He teaches and trains those who come to faith in Jesus. Conversion is not the finish line. Somebody saying a prayer is not the finish line. Somebody even committing their life to Christ as Lord is not the finish line, but the entrance ramp for Paul as he enters them into this process of discipleship whereby he trains them up, teaching them all the things that Jesus had commanded. And so we see him doing this. As we saw from 1 Corinthians early, he baptizes new believers or makes sure that they're baptized by someone else. And so these, these are just some of the elements that Paul was engaged in as he was in Ephesus. So why am I bringing this up? Why highlight these particular aspects from this really long passage we're in today? Because I think there's something specific that Paul is trying to get across. There's something noteworthy for us as we not only examine what happened in history here, but as we evaluate the ministry that we're called to do in our context. Why are these elements important to acknowledge? Because Paul has been executing the very commission that all Christians, all Christ followers, are called to. In fact, these elements that Paul is highlighting from his ministry are exactly what Jesus commanded all of us and what we know of as the Great Commission. It'll be up on the screen for you. Here's what Jesus says, or the account of Jesus is uh, giving the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So what is Paul highlighting to the elders as he's giving them an account of the ministry that he did in their midst? That he is following obediently and modeling for them, living out the Great Commission to go, to make disciples, to baptize and to teach and Paul executed this, and he modeled it, and this was the expectation for them as well. As Paul summarizes his ministry in Ephesus to the elders, he demonstrates that he has, in fact, been living out in their midst the great commission that the Lord has called all believers to. This has been his ministry. Here's the second thing that Paul highlights in these verses 
that we've just read as he speaks with the Ephesian elders. He demonstrates the outlook that Christians are called to have as they serve the Lord in this world. Paul doesn't boast, by the way. If anything, Paul boasts in his weaknesses. We see this through his letters. He, he understands that he has no business being a disciple of Jesus. He has no business receiving the grace that God has offered. It is only by God's grace that he has it, and he is deeply thankful for it. So Paul is highlighting these things in his ministry, not to toot his own horn, but to show that we are all called to these things. And one of these is the outlook that all believers ought to have as they go forward in obedience to live out the call that Jesus has for us in the world. There's a couple verses I want to draw your attention to. The first is verse 19. Paul says this, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. And he did. If you read through the various passages that we've been talking about, we've been looking at as a church over the last several months, Paul has endured hardships for the gospel over and over and over again. You know, it's funny. We go and share the gospel and somebody speaks rudely to us and we don't tell anybody about Jesus for six months until we get over it. Paul goes town to town. He's imprisoned. He's flogged. He's stoned. He's spat upon. He's, he's treated in horrible ways and he just keeps going. And Ephesus was no exception. In verses 22 to 24, we see this. He's talking, uh, he's going on, he says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Man, that is such, that, does that go against the grain for us or what? Paul had a good view, a good framework for understanding reality. You've heard me say this before. If you were in Sunday school, you're gonna hear it twice in one day. But we tend to think of, our service to the Lord in these ways. We have the pie chart of our lives. And within our pie chart, all the things that are priorities to us, all the things that we care about, all the things that are important to us, all the ways in which we divide our time, our energy, our resources. And we think we're doing well if we give God the biggest portion, the top place in our list of priorities, we think we're doing okay. And then in the other compartments, we have things like our job. We have things like our family, our hobbies, our leisure, our travel, uh, our friends, and other responsibilities, all within the pie chart of our life. And we don't think we're doing well when our time with God starts to get smaller while other things are getting bigger. And so we try to, again, expand that time, giving God the biggest piece of our pie chart. This is not what the Bible calls us to. In fact, you've heard in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 6, and you've heard Jesus repeat, I believe in all four Gospels, this, that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, all our mind. 
There is no part left after those four. Jesus is saying all of all of us is to love the Lord with. Meaning that God doesn't get the biggest pace of our pie chart. God transcends every category of our pie chart. Our life is not about us anymore. Paul says it this way in another, in Philippians, I believe. He says, he says, um, and don't you hate when you just kind of go on your own, you forget the passage, or you're going to just completely butcher it when you paraphrase it. But here's what he, here's what he communicates. That he has died in Christ. His, he no longer, the life he lives for in this body, he no longer lives for himself. It is Christ living his life through him. And Paul is demonstrating the truth of this. These are just words. He's living it out in all of the ministry that God has called him to. His life is not about Paul. Paul has died. Paul has died with Christ and no longer lives, but Christ lives in him. And so as he goes, Paul doesn't matter. Hardships don't matter. Imprisonment doesn't matter. Dying as a martyr for the Lord doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is being faithful to execute that which God has called him to do until he can no longer do it for the Lord has taken him home. And so again, this is not to Paul's glory, but to God's glory. And when we think about the boldness of Paul and his ability and willingness even to step into these difficult situations in life in faithfulness to God, and you wonder, man, how do I get a piece of that boldness? How can I do what Paul did? And you know what? It comes down to holding on to the right understanding of our lives and this world and the things that God has called us to. I'm often impressed with Paul's boldness. And I've heard several in our congregation over the years say, I wish I had just a little bit of the boldness of Paul. And I ask, it might be that Paul was just a hard-headed tough, stubborn, courageous guy who just happened to be wired in a certain way, I don't think that's the explanation for what Paul was able to accomplish. I don't think that's the reason that Paul does what he does. I think it's, he did it because he kept the truth always before him, the right framework always before him, that this life is not about him. It's about Jesus. And again, this is following after the teaching that Jesus himself has laid down. Here's just one of the places. We see this in the Gospels. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He says, do not be afraid of those who could kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who could destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a strong teaching from Jesus, right? What's he saying here? He's speaking to his disciples, interestingly enough, many of which will be martyred for the Lord Jesus. He's speaking to them while he's still with them. And he's telling them, don't back down, don't freeze up, don't remain silent because of fear of death. Instead, remember the truth, that death is but a leg on a longer journey of eternity, and that there are more important things than preserving your own life that we ought not to surrender our faithfulness to God over fear of human persons or fear of losing our lives. Instead, we serve God, who alone is worthy of respect as he holds our mortal lives and our eternal lives in his hands. And Paul understands this. We see in Romans 8.18, Paul's own words, he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. 
Keeps it all in perspective. Here's Romans 8, 31 to 39. Paul again, he says, What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The things that stand opposed to us and God's will for our lives don't matter one lick because they cannot separate us from the God who loves us, the God who redeemed us, and the one who promises and holds on to our inheritance for that day. And so all we need to focus on is running the race that he has set for us. Again, these aren't Paul's boasts about himself. He is not boasting about his own boldness. Paul didn't live this way because he was special. Rather, he demonstrated a life lived by the truth of what Jesus has revealed. He lived by the correct perspective. That is, that this life is not all that there is. In fact, the life uh, to come is much more important than the life that Paul lives or we live now in the body. The mission now is more important. God is all important. And so Paul not only lived with such boldness, proclaiming the gospel in the face of dangerous persecution, but he expected the Ephesian elders who he's meeting with, who will have to care for the church in his absence, he expects them to do the same. He expects not only the elders to do this, but the Ephesian believers who these elders lead to also do the same. And Paul would expect that you and I in 2023 in Belglade would also do the same. And here's the third and final thing that Paul highlights in these verses. He urges them to remain in the truth, which he has faithfully trained them in. He urges them to remain in the truth that he has faithfully trained them in. We see this in verses 25 through 27. He says, now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, I have done my best to teach you the truth, to train you up in the scriptures, to pass on to you the teachings of the Lord Jesus, that you might know the truth and hold on to it. And I am not guilty of anything that happens from here on out. Because I have faithfully done what I was called to do. And now the responsibility falls on you, the elders, and on the people in the church of Ephesus to not only have heard the message, but to continue in it 
clinging to it, not exchanging it for a false truth, not abandoning it and walking away from it, but clinging to it and guarding it all your days. Paul's time in Ephesus is finished. In fact, the Lord has let him know that he will never return. And I wish, I wish God told me things like that. You'll be in Belgrade for this number of years. That's about to happen. Oh, when you, face, when you get into this town, you're going to face this. God doesn't communicate to me that way. I wish he did. Paul had some insight. He knew he would never return. And this is his final time to impart wisdom to his elders in Ephesus. And so he won't be there to teach them further. He won't be there to lead them in their various ministries that he's helped them to establish over the last three years. He won't be there to evangelize their community any longer. You know, it must be cool to be in Ephesus proclaiming the gospel when Paul's doing it too, right? It's like, you're out there, you know, hey, you got to believe in Jesus, you know, he died on the cross for your sins, and Paul's out there, and people are just flocking to him, and it's like, you know, we all march in together with Paul, you know, victorious, the church is growing all the time, you know, you had like little to do with that, because God's using Paul in some crazy ways, and now Paul's gone. But guess what? The ministry continues, because it wasn't Paul that was special. It was the Holy Spirit working through faithful believers to proclaim the truth of the gospel, of what God has done to save people. And God will continue that after Paul leaves. But here we see that Paul won't be there anymore to, to help in this evangelistic task. He won't be there when important decisions have to be made by church leaders, whether or not they're of one accord on the matter. He won't be there to, com to combat the false teachings when they make their way into the church. Paul's ministry is finished in Ephesus, but the ministry continues. And Paul makes mention of another important fact. He has taught them the truth. He has taught them the gospel. He's taught them the word of God. He's taught them right doctrine. And now they must cling to it. They must live it out. They must pass it on and they must defend it. You know, I have a feeling that most Christians in the United States really don't understand the role of a pastor. They don't know biblically, they may know culturally what pastoral ministry looks like, but they don't know biblically what the pastor and the elders are called to. And here's really what you see more often than not, you see the, the main task throughout the scriptures of what the pastor is supposed to do, what the elders are supposed to do, it's to teach right doctrine and to refute false doctrine to teach the truth of Scripture and to defend it against aberrant teachings, false gospels, heresies, things that will lead the people of God astray to something other than the truth that God has revealed in his Scriptures. We see this uh, in many places, but we see this here in Paul's instructions to Titus. Uh, Titus 1.9, he says, Talking about elders, he said he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And we see in our passage today, uh, just a few verses on which we'll look at next week, that it is the role of the elders to, to defend the flock when false teachers come in and Paul says they will. 
That's the role of a pastor. That's the role of an elder. That's the role that Paul maintained during his time in Ephesus. And that is my role here at Belglade Alliance Church, in case you wondered. However, it's the role that each individual Christ follower and the church as a whole uh, has is to hold fast to the truth of the scriptures, to hold fast to right teaching, to right doctrine, and to be able to defend it, to be able to teach it, to be able to pass it on. Uh, These are our responsibility corporately as the people of God. And Paul is saying that he has done everything he could. He was not guilty in this area. However, now the responsibility falls to the Ephesians that he leaves behind to continue in these things. So friends, Paul lived out as a model for others that which Jesus instructed all of us in. We are, there's no passes, there's no exceptions. All of us are called to go and make disciples, to teach them the scriptures, to baptize them or have them baptized. And this isn't just for the apostles. It's not just for uh, the elders in Ephesus. This is for all Christ followers for all times. All of us are called to these things. Friends, we cannot live in fear of persecution. I know that's easier said than done, right? There's some threatening things in our world. There are things that, that, that make us want to back down at times, but we're not to back down. And we, could, we, need, we need to not be in fear of persecution, loss of reputation, loss of job, imprisonment, even death. These things cannot freeze us up or back us down from that which God has called us to. There should be nothing that scares us away from the mission that God has set before us. We have to keep the correct perspective of the life that we now live in Christ, him living his life through us. And friends, each and every one of us must be responsible for our own clinging to the truth that God has revealed to us in the scriptures. We must hold fast to good doctrine and reject false doctrine. And if we don't know the difference, then we are not spending enough time in this book. Listen to me, friends. If you try to understand this book by what you read in another book or what you hear on the radio or what you watch on television or what you listen to on the Internet, then you are not studying this properly. Those other voices might help, but even those other voices you need to be able to think critically about and discern truth from error. And that comes from knowing this book. And so I encourage you to be reading it on your own. I encourage you to be reading it together in places outside of our church. I encourage you to be joining together with the larger church family at Alliance Women, at Alliance Men, at our Sunday school. And to be thinking through this and pouring over its pages and learning what God has graciously revealed to us so that we can hold on to the truth and reject error whenever it raises its head in our midst. And pastors and teachers will one day be held accountable for the teaching of God's word, whether they did it poorly, incorrectly, or well. But we will all be held accountable one day for whether or not we clung to the truth of God's word as revealed to us. And so let us be people who cling to the truth of God's word.